You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And we are back for season four, and I am so excited that I cannot contain myself. Um, You know, we usually recap what we did over the summer since this is the first episode of the season, but there's no way that we can get through that because we have to introduce our special guest um, who we just cannot believe agreed to come on the podcast, and we cannot wait to hear more from the one, the only... Dr. Peter Hotez, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, I'm thrilled to see you both and thrilled to join this. Uh, looking forward we to We are it. so excited. So there, I, I could, we could spend the whole episode listing off all of Peter's credentials and accomplishments, but I'll try and keep it succinct. So Dr. Peter J. Hotez, MD, PhD. He's a scientist, a pediatrician, an advocate in the fields of global health vaccinology, and neglected tropical disease control. He serves as the founding dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine, a professor of pediatrics and molecular virology and microbiology at Baylor College of Medicine, where he is the also the director of the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development and Texas Children's Hospital Endowed Chair in Tropical Pediatrics and university professor of biology at Baylor College of Medicine. Um, yeah, that's a long signature. He, oh Dr. Hotez has also served previously as the president of the American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene and as a founding editor-in-chief of Close Neglected Tropical Diseases. He is also the co-director of Parasites Without Borders, which is a global nonprofit with a focus on those suffering from parasitic diseases in subtropical environments. Um, he also, if you aren't aware, worked around the clock to bring um, to develop and bring a nonprofit COVID vaccine to the world. Um, he provided it patent-free to um, developing countries so they could manufacture low-cost COVID vaccines. Um, and he obviously put himself personally on the line to keep the public informed during the pandemic. He was even nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize for his selfless work. In addition to COVID-19 vaccines, he's also worked on a variety of other vaccine projects, including other coronavirus vaccines, human hookworm vaccines, the schistosomiasis vaccine, the Chagas disease and leishmaniasis vaccines, um, as well as the SARS-CoV original, the OG SARS. Um, And then he's also working on a multivalent anti-helminthic vaccine project, which is essentially trying to develop vaccines for a variety of parasitic infections that we see in, um, you know, subtropical countries around the world. So very, very long CV. That was a tiny, tiny snippet of it. Um, yeah, looks like looks like we're out of time. Done. That's, that's a wrap. Um, but thank you so much. Oh, by, 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 by the way, with with all of that, so um, for the Nobel Peace Prize, I was co-nominated with my science partner for the last twenty 
plus years, Dr. Mary Elena Bukatsky. Wonderful. Well, thank you for clarifying that. (laughs) Very important. And I love that we're giving, you know, due due respect to everyone involved. Um, Of course, um, Peter has been on a whirlwind book tour, if you all are not aware. Um, He recently launched his latest book, which is called The Deadly Rise of Anti-Science, A Scientist's Warning. And a lot of the topics are topics that we cover here on the pod, but we're going to kind of dig into the meat and potatoes of it with him today. Yes. uh, Andrea and I both read it cover to cover. It's an incredible read. Uh, We will certainly link to this in our show notes. You definitely want to get yourself a copy. This is our new Bible. Um, Just real quick before I read a little snippet from the inside cover, just to give you a sense of what you can expect in the book. Dr. Hotez, I just had to share with you that For those people who live under a rock and don't know who you are, we've been saying that having you on the pod is sort of like um, having Brad Pitt on the pod for those who live outside of the scientific world. For the science nerds, yeah. I mean, it's once you you get trolled by Joe Rogan, Elon Musk, and RFK Jr. at the same time, it's like you made it big. Well, it's it's all the followers on Twitter who aren't following Taylor Swift. So it's, uh, <laughs> all right. So let me just read a little bit about this, and then we have some questions for you. Okay. So in this eyewitness story of how the anti-vaccine movement grew into a dangerous and prominent anti-science element in American politics, Hotez describes the devastating impacts it has had on Americans' health and lives. As a scientist who has endured antagonism from anti-vaxxers and been at the forefront of both essential scientific discovery and advocacy, Hotez is uniquely qualified to tell this story. He explains how anti-science became a major societal and lethal force. In the first years of the pandemic, more than 200,000 unvaccinated Americans needlessly died despite the widespread availability of COVID vaccines. I'll just stop there, um, Dr. Hotez. With that, let's dig into some questions, if that's okay mm-hmm. with you. Sure. So oh, oh, yeah. I, I think the, the biggest takeaway, I think, that I, I think is important for people to understand is that, you know, we talk a lot about anti-science or um, rejection of science, but you actually phrased it in a different way. You called it anti-science aggression, um, and you suggest that it's more appropriate to call it that instead of um, misinformation or disinformation. Can you explain for our listeners and for just maybe the public in general, why you feel that this is a more appropriate way of phrasing this rejection of science and and what the impact might have of, of actually reframing it into a more kind of action word? Yeah, it's, it's the way this has changed or morphed over the last few years. You know, we, we still call it misinformation or infodemic, but I I don't like those terms anymore because it implies it's just some random junk on the internet that people happen to stumble across. And, and from the book, we now know this is no longer the case. It's it's an organized ecosystem that's fully enmeshed in American politics on the far right. And um, it's been adopted by, um, the House Freedom Caucus, it's it's certain U.S. senators, Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, Rand Paul, you got Governor DeSantis involved in this, and certain podcasters, and then it's amplified every night on Fox News, as, and I document two sources that basically 
the reason 200,000 Americans died is they were targeted. They were targeted by this politically driven ecosystem um, that filled uh, Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram's, Sean Hannity's broadcasts every night, watching three mil- three, watched by three million viewers with uh, information that falsely claims that vaccines are either not safe or don't work, COVID vaccines, and and amplified by their elected leaders and working hand in glove together, they convinced Americans by the thousands, maybe millions, not to take a COVID vaccine during the horrible Delta wave the last half of 2021. That started with the CPAC conference of conservatives um, uh, and at the start of the Delta wave. And the language was, the rhetoric was, first they're going to vaccinate you, then they're going to take away your guns and your Bibles. And as ridiculous as that sounds to us, people in my state of Texas and adjoining states, you know, accepted that and, and tied their allegiance to not getting vaccinated and ultimately paid for their lives with it. And I'm sure there are many more long COVID survivors uh, as well. And, and that's why we need to care about this. It's too often now pitched as some element of America's culture wars and or wokeness and this kinds of stuff. And it's not, it's a killing lethal force. And, and it's not that we, as scientists, we care about people's political views. That's, that's, that's not our fight. I mean, that's your right as an American to, if you want to have extremist views, fine. It's, but my point is somehow we have to uncouple or delink the anti-science from this because it's just killing too many, it has killed too many Americans. And, and, and now it's taken on an additional dimension in that it's there's an attempt now to revise history and and to now say way to claim it wasn't COVID that killed Americans it was the vaccines that killed Americans and the claim that that the virus was invented by the scientists this is all a whitewash this is and that's what's playing out in the House hearings right now I mean you're you know the House COVID subcommittee hearings. Um, don't even pretend this is anything other than political theater on their official Twitter site. They say we're going to sell popcorn. Yeah. Um, it's, so it's, this it's, is nothing more than, and, 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 you know, it's parading prominent American scientists in front of C-SPAN cameras to humiliate them. Right. And so it's, so as bad as it's been um, causing such needless death and suffering, now it's, now it's turning the tables and portraying us as public enemies or enemies of the state. And, and we need to describe that and report it. Um, even if I don't, even if we don't have the answers to it yet, the first step to solving a problem, or as Pasteur said, you know, um, the key, you know, identifying the enemy is halfway towards disarming them. At least we, we know what we're dealing with and, and, or to quote Madame Curie, Marie Curie, um, you know, we don't need to be fearful. We need to understand. And, and that's what this, and that's what this is all about. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, and it's, and it's heartbreaking that obviously so many people have needlessly lost their lives. And it's also heartbreaking, especially I think for Jess and myself as, you know, these young kind of green scientists. I mean, I think I'm a little more cynical than I certainly was 10 years ago. Um, but, you know, it's, it's hard to get up every day and, you know, want to, just help people understand, demystify things, help them navigate this world of, you know, misinformation that is intentional um, when there's so much hostility directed at mm-hmm. us. And it really, yeah, oh, sorry, and, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I make the point that, you know, 
these people are, you know, we're, we're targeted and they're extraordinary people. I, I, um, uh, it was really bad if you go to some of the conservative areas of these states, like in, I gave uh, medical grand rounds at East Texas, University of Texas, Tyler, you know, very conservative area. And basically everyone you talk to there has lost a loved one because they refused a COVID vaccine. And, and I'll never forget a few weeks later, I gave uh, medical grand rounds at Stanford. And I said, you know, which is in a very wealthy uh, area of, of well, all of California is wealthy, but, but, you know, in Palo Alto, especially. And I said, look, if my, if you gave me the choice of my car breaking down in, in, in East Texas or in Palo Alto, California, I'd pick East Texas because everybody would be fighting over the opportunity to help you change your tire. And, 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 and so this was a predatory movement that went after these people. And, and I think we need to insist on some level of accountability. And then by targeting the scientists, the damage that's being done. I mean, if you're a young person, right? Let's say you know, you're an undergraduate major, you know, and you're deciding maybe I want to be a scientist. I really like my you know, undergraduate physics class. You're going to look at this and say, wait a minute, scientists are being vilified. They're bad guys, right? Mm-hmm. So this is going to have ramifications, I think, for a long time to come. You know, Andrea and I, we obviously, we get a lot of pushback. We get a lot of accusations hurled at us. We've had death threats, um, sexual violence threats. I mean, horrible things about my children. Just, I mean, it's, it's been awful. And we're obviously only seeing a fraction of what we can only imagine you see. Um, So, um, okay. I just want to move on. So, I mean, on this same note, so speaking of anti-science aggression, I think we all know that you have been very publicly targeted by people who hold extreme anti-vaccine and anti-science views. Notably, RFK Jr. has tried to get you to publicly debate him about vaccines. Uh, Joe Rogan, Elon Musk, Bill Ackman have all chimed in as well, trying to get you to debate We wholeheartedly support your decision not to do this, and we've been very vocal about this, as it wouldn't be a debate, it would be a spectacle. But can you talk more about this, maybe summarize your reasoning and and the blowback that you've received as a result? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, it's I've spoken to Robert F. Kennedy Jr. many times over the years. I was asked by the National Institutes of Health to talk to him when he was making false claims about vaccines causing autism. And I have a daughter with autism and he wrote the book, Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism. So, I mean, I'll never forget it. I was in uh, my office and my assistant said, Dr. Hotez, uh, Dr. Francis Collins and Anthony Fauci are on the phone. Can you talk to them? And I said, uh, okay, <laughs> yeah, sure. And he basically said, Peter, you know, um, We'd like you to talk to RFK Jr. because you have a daughter with autism. You explain, and 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 so we had a series of phone calls. Um, this was in 2017 after he came out and said that Trump was going to President Trump was going to uh, appoint him head of the Vaccine Commission, which I thought was going to not go well. And you know, it was and it was just it was an exercise in frustration, probably for both of us, because I, you know, he, from my view, he just kept on switching up his assertions. First, he said it was the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine that did it. Then it was thimerosal preservative. Then it was spacing vaccines too close together. Then it was aliment vaccines, and then it was something about the HPV vaccine causing chronic illness or infertility. And so you were constantly playing this sort of pyrrhic game of whack-a-mole or moving the goalpost that was frustrating. So 
I knew something, you know, and then over the years, what happens is every few months, there's, you know, some high profile person, either in the anti-vaccine world or now the far right decides to go after me and, and make and create a cause celeb. So this happened in 2021, where Laura Ingram and on Fox News, together with Governor DeSantis, were mocking me because I was predicting the Delta wave was about to slam Florida. And, and sure enough, it did two weeks later. And But, you know, every time there's something like that, then it's a wave of aggression online or physical stalkings that, that happen. And and then it happened again in 2022 when Tucker Carlson called me a Charlotte. It was the it was the day um, Mary Lane and I were co-nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. He, he couldn't let me enjoy no, the day, no. right? He had the, and so that and then and then the you know the wave of aggression, the army of patriots is coming to hunt me down. This this kind of stuff. And then I knew I was in trouble because Steve Bannon publicly declared me a criminal. And I said, uh-oh, well, first of all, Steve Bannon publicly declares you're a criminal. You got to take that stuff seriously. Oh right? And then, and then, so I said, uh-oh, I wonder if this is, this is going to be yet another one of those waves. And, and then right on cue, you know, the whole pile on with Joe Rogan and Elon Musk and, and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And, and there were a few reasons why I didn't want to do it. Um, one was, I think the most important is this is not how we do science, right? We we have a we've got a pretty well oiled, well finely tuned approach to science. It has its flaws, but it works. And that is, we um, write papers, right? And they get a major revision, or a reviewer two makes unreasonable demands, but we still address them, right? So there's a peer review process, and sometimes the paper gets rejected altogether or you know we do the same thing with our grants and, and sometimes they don't get discussed they get triaged and or there's a lot of very um, detailed criticism or we go to scientific meetings and present in front of our colleagues I mean and get feedback sometimes positive sometimes not but the point is you know it's a very heavily um, watched and 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 there's a lot of opportunity for feedback and, and discussion but it's not a public debate i can't think of any time where a scientific issue was advanced through public right. debate at least in modern times i mean i i get it you know einstein had public discussions with niels bohr but it wasn't really a debate it was too esteemed colleagues who respected each other having a public discussion with other physicists yeah. and that that's very different i i can't think of any example really yeah. of and doing. so that was and, one. And, I think, and, I, and i thought by and i thought by doing a de- public quote public debate it sends the wrong message to young people it says hey this is how science is done it's the the guy is more clever the guy who has more clever says uh more more pithy things or greater put downs that that's 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 that carries the day and no that's that's not how it works and and then was the fact that um you know i think there was ulterior motives in having me debate rfk jr and that is um and and i learned this from molly jongfast um, from msnbc very smart and she goes on cnn msnbc she helps me sort of understand some of the politics and she 
was saying, well, you know, they're trying to push, promote him as a third party candidate um, and to take votes away from Biden. And, you know, by you having RFK Jr. debate a prominent American scientist, that kind of gives him some street cred. And, and I didn't want to help him. Um, uh, and so that was the uh, the other reason. And it just got crazy with the party yeah. on it. And the cash they wanted to give. And, you know, Elon Musk calling it, don't you like charity? Yeah. I mean, I mean it's just, it was so I was, I was watching from afar. I don't participate on Twitter because I find it to be one of the worst of the social platforms. But I was like, Someone was a. Well, I, I quote Lady Gaga, Lady Gaga, who called it the toilet yes, of the internet. Absolutely and, right. And this, but you know, I think Elon that. Musk was was like a, calling you a pharma shill essentially, and everybody was like, uh, "He he donated his vaccine patent for free, and you are one of the wealthiest and people we, on the planet." We found a, you know, we, our my whole career has been devoted to making using science to make vaccines that bypass the pharma right. companies. Right. Right. Oh, well, we created agree. a different model, and so, but the truth doesn't mean anything yeah. to these guys. It's whatever, well, and I think you know, I think whatsoever stokes the faux outrage machine. Yes, and that's and that's that's exactly the you know a debate is not you know even in the political sphere it doesn't really serve an informational purpose, right? It's it's who postures the most, who is the loudest, who sounds the most confident. It's it's a um it's a performance and someone like RFK Jr who um you know, he's he's a lawyer by profession, you know, I mean he he trained in that, right? Like he does that when they go to court or, you know, file a motion and obviously he's had a a decades long history of, of um, posturing in the context of all of the anti-science information with the children's health defense, which um, we've, we've done some posts on uh, particularly with regard to the Samoan measles outbreak and some of the other things. But, but um, you know, I think it's really important for, for the public to understand that, you know, in, in some of these contexts, it's, you can't have a debate or even a scientific discussion among people who one person has this expertise and the other person has this expertise. You know, they're not, it's not a comparable uh, field and, That's you know. Right. Well, it's not a good, it's, and, and it's not being done in good faith. Correct. Also, there's an, there's an agenda there. Yeah. And as I say, I mean, there are things that are accomplished with debates. You can debate politics I guess you can debate 18th century enlightenment philosophy and from, from two, you know, philosophers debating Rousseau and, and Kant and Bishop Barclay. And, and that's fine too, but that's not how, how science is done, how science is advanced. And, and I, and I thought it would set us back and, and, and wasn't prepared to do that. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point. So kind of, but, but of course that, that, launched a whole wave of yeah. aggression and was pitched as though I was uh, a chicken. Was You're a coward. coward yes. Afraid or, or had something to hide. I think that's what Elon yeah. Musk said. It's all, yeah. it's all, it's all which, nonsense. Which is, is a little baffling because yeah. all the they're, data. They're mad that I wasn't, they're mad that I wasn't helping them monetize. The yeah. Right. Yeah. They were going to make a ton of money off of that for sure. Right. Um. So, so, you know, it's interesting because you, you talked a little bit about, um, you know, Rand Paul, and I want to maybe go back to some of the historical context in the book about Ron Paul. So we talked, you talked a lot about the concept of medical freedom and, you know, this is a pervasive trend that we see in the U.S. kind of like this, um, you know, person first before community first and, and also, but the simultaneous vilification of the pharmaceutical industry. 
but it's but it's interesting and this is something that we talk a lot about is that for some reason um scientists who work in biotech or, or pharmaceutical industry are vilified whereas scientists or pe- or just people that work for the wellness or supplement industry are somehow doing this altruistically when that is also a multi-billion dollar industry so you know we you actually gave great context with regard to um you know the the weaponization of that that medical freedom term and how it actually led to legislation being passed which is the health freedom protection act which is which is why supplements can can be sold without having any evidence to prove their safety or efficacy um and and of course the wellness industry makes billions of dollars on that every year um but why do you think that there's such cognitive dissonance between the pharmaceutical industry and kind of biomedical sciences and kind of this this supplement and wellness sphere which don't have data to support them, but, but make a lot of money. And what are maybe some tangible ways to kind of overcome this dissonance? Well, the, the wellness industry, of course, and I'm not an expert in the wellness industry, just what I've seen it there, obviously they're, they're raking in a lot of money. They, they generate a lot of propaganda against legitimate scientists because that helps them, right? Because that's the whole point of being alternative is you want to, and it's not, you know, it's not just selling your supplements, it's vilifying mainstream science as something nefarious. And, and they do that quite well. And that's before it got adopted by the far right. Um, that was, that was version 1.0 of the anti-vaccine movement. It came out of what my friend Imran Ahmed, who heads the Center for Countering Digital Hate, calls the disinformation dozen. Uh, a lot of those individuals and groups came right out of the health and wellness uh, industry. And, you know, there's also some of the chiropractic, uh, chiropractors. Oh, yes. also. Not all, but, but, you know, some. You see this, and you see this whole passion play play out at, at chiropractic. I can't even pronounce it. Chiropractic <laughs> conferences. And, yeah, one of a chiropractor. And then they invite all the and then they invite all the prominent anti-vaxxers, right? They invite um, Joker and Penguin and Riddler <laughs> and Catwoman. You know, they're all there and and at, at these wellness conferences and 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 that's part of it. And and of course, it doesn't help us that there is a lot of greed in the pharma industry, big pharma industry. And I'm the first to point that out and say we're that's why we're trying to bypass. It. I mean. Look what Pfizer and Moderna did, right? They took $25 billion in U.S. taxpayer dollars for advanced purchase for the mRNA vaccines and in Moderna's case, development costs. And, and then they turn it around and jack up the price fourfold to $130 a dose. And I mean, do you want people to hate you? I mean, you know, have some situational awareness, guys, you know. But So that's that's so that doesn't help us uh, either, but... Um, but it, it's very important to have that honest discussion that, you know, we're, you know, in, my, in our case, we're making vaccines in the nonprofit sector, making the vaccines that the pharma companies would never make. But, you know, people want simple tropes and things like mm-hmm. that. And so it's, it's you're just to call me a pharma show. And, you know, Joe Rogan and RFK Jr. started calling me a pharma show when when it's right in front of their nose that I'm anything but. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, Andrew, can I just jump in with one thing? I know we have a million things to ask, but so we're talking about this, you know, blanket vilification of, of big pharma, right? And, you know, we've talked about that a little bit, but we feel like what we see is that sort of gets intertwined with this vilification of government agencies and the FDA and the CDC. What would you tell the public to help instill trust? Is there anything that you would want to share with people who share that sentiment? Yeah, in fact, um, one of the reviews of the book was by Dr. Oreskes, you know, at um, Mm -hmm. Harvard, the historian, historian, really nice review. And she points out, you know, this is very much linked to, you know, goes back to de Tocqueville and, and, you know, ideas of of American freedom. But what's happened, though, is it's been weaponized and and treated as something that that it's not to directly attack the science and the scientists. And, and that's where it, it crosses a line and does something very dangerous. So it, it's, so it's basically taking on what authoritarian regimes have done since the mid 20th century, which is target science and scientists as a form of authoritarian control. And that's, and how do you de-link that to the politics is very complicated. And so I, there's, you know, and I wound up talking to political scientists like Ruth Ben-Gad at NYU, the historian who writes a book called Strong Men, or, um, or reading about Hannah, reading Hannah Arendt and the origins of totalitarianism, or, or Anna Applebaum uh, and her writings. And it's all happened before that this is a form of political control. You attack the intelligentsia, you attack the science and the scientists. Now, you know, they, they threw Vavilov, the Mendelian geneticist, and the Gulag to favor Lysenko's Lamarckian theories. And even though it 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 crashed the Russian wheat crop for several years and and two to three million Soviet peasants died from starvation, that didn't matter. It was all about maintaining control. And that's what I worry is happening now on a smaller scale. It's maintaining control for the extremist elements of the GOP is so important that it doesn't matter if we destroy science and scientists. And there's this lack of understanding that you know, we are a nation built on the strengths of our of our scientific institutions and research universities. And, and I worry about the permanent damage to our science infrastructure. I mean, we're already seeing what's happening now at the NIH They're, when they want to shut down international research. By, I mean, can you imagine demanding that now I have copies of all the lab notebooks on my foreign collaborators. And what am I supposed to do? Translate that from Vietnamese into English? Who's going to do that? And and who in the office of research is going to sign off on that? I don't have collaboration with Vietnam, just an example. And, 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 and who's going to sign off a legal counsel? So it's basically going to shut down international research. And and how are we supposed to now do surveillance right. of, Global of these viruses like Ebola and coronaviruses and Nipah viruses emerging from bats right. in Central Asia all the way down to Yunnan province and the Southeast Asia? Who's going to do that now? Yeah. So it means that we're going to be dependent on other countries to do all of our disease surveillance for us. Yeah, and cer- certainly so is going to it's, impact. It's killing, American, it's killing Americans. It's jeopardizing our national security. It's uh, it's really awful. And I think the other thing that I'm upset about is we're not hearing enough from our scientific societies yes. and our national academies. I mean, where's the outrage, right? I mean, I mean, that's 
I mean, we're not hearing from the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. We're not hearing from the agencies. We're not hearing from the White House directly. We should, yeah. right? I mean, you don't, we don't haul prominent American scientists in front of C-SPAN cameras to humiliate them. Like, but, but that's what's it. Where, where is the outrage yeah. over that? Yeah. So, so I'm doing it, but, um, but it's very lonely at yeah. times. And, uh, and, you know, there needs to be a lot more institutionalized backing to say this is not good for the country. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great point. And I think, you know, Jess and I share, share that sentiment. We talk a lot about, you know, our frustrations with, you know, clickbait headlines. I mean, even something like the, you know, the IARC aspartame classification when at the same time the, the JECFA reaffirmed consumption levels are totally safe. And of course, you know, the media outlets either intentionally or unintentionally kind of distort what that actually means and omit the food safety expert agencies. And of, and of course, there's just, you know, the, the, the what, what's the, the, the horse is out of the barn at that point. And, you know, there's it, it's really hard to kind of dial back. And, and I'm, you know, CCDH talks a lot about how false information spreads more quickly than credible information. And we talk a lot about how, you know, science isn't sexy. But, you know, we're trying to obviously improve the fact that the majority of adult Americans are not scientifically literate, meaning they can't make informed decisions about scientific topics because they don't actually, they can't interpret what they're, what they're consuming information wise. Um, you know, and I think during COVID we saw a lot of the politicization of COVID and vaccines on the kind of right wing extremists. Um, but, you know, and, and, and I think, I, the evidence is clear that this is coordinated and that it's multi-pronged. Um, but there's other areas of like anti-science aggression and a couple of that you noted in the book as well that that maybe cross political aisles or even lean more on the far left side of things. So you get these extremes on either side and it's almost like they meet in a circle um, where you noted, and, and this one is obviously particularly relevant to me as the um, American Lyme Disease Foundation Executive Director, but um, Senator Blumenthal, which was the senator of Connecticut, Democratic senator, and I grew up in Connecticut, so I remember him well. Um, but he attacked the Infectious Disease Society of America with regard to their treatment guidelines and diagnostic guidelines for Lyme disease, and that yeah, when, when he was attorney general, when he was attorney general, yes, I think and but it led yeah. to the propagation of a lot of misinformation about Lyme disease and other tick-borne infections, um, as well as you know abuse of antibiotics and inappropriate prescriptions. Um, and we also see a lot of that with regard to like genetic engineering technology, food science, crop science, um, chemophobia, and like the all natural thing. And a lot of that seems to be kind of led by the liberal arm of the political aisle. Like, for example, the recent Democratic led um, um, attempts to ban titanium dioxide in California because there were some frivolous lawsuits filed against Skittles, you know, about this naturally occurring chemical. So, you know, with regard to like COVID or anti-vaccine, there's often like two, two extremes that are opposing it, but for different reasons um, where we see like the, the far right often opposing because of like control, they don't want to be controlled or told what to do. Whereas the far left is opposed more out of like fear of, chemicals or, or misinformation about science what's your perspective about you know 
that existence, why they might sit on certain sides of the political yeah, aisle? I mean, I mean, 10 years ago, if you were to look at the anti-vaccine movement, I think maybe even in the Rachel book I talk about, I think you, you would say it's the two extremes, as you rightly point out. It's the far right, but you also had, you know, peace, love, and granola. We have to be careful what we're going to put into our vaccines. And you had the group in Vashon Island yes. in, in Seattle to, you know, and and that still exists, but I think it's been clearly in the case of the vaccine space is now clearly dominated by the far yeah. right. What you do see is the anti-GMO people go after, but to me, they seem almost um, adopted by the, the far right um, now. So that, that anti-GMO was a, an extreme left issue now, just like RFK Jr., right? right? I mean, he's endorsed by Steve Bannon and everything else. So even though he's running as a Democrat, uh, you know, at least from the way he talks about science, it's it's he has he has extreme views that are taken on by the right. So um, so I think what you're seeing is what was formerly on the left is now you know a full on part of uh, um, of what used to be called the Republican Tea Party, and now mm-hmm. I don't know mm-hmm. what they call it, but it's extremist on the right side. It, it definitely impacts. I mean, Andrea, you make such a great point. The way that we put out our science communication and our messaging, because it's almost like we have two different camps of people. One where it's more about our freedom, you know, no one tells me to get a vaccine, you know, stuff like that, versus more of the chemophobia, fear of ingredients and what you're putting in your body and, and this and that. So um, just a very important point to raise. So I want to be mindful of time here, and I'm sure people want to know, Dr. Hortez, what you think of sort of the current state of COVID, where we're heading, um, the effectiveness of the current or the, the newly approved COVID vaccines, the updated vaccines, anything you want to tell the public, and, and especially in the context of um, certain outspoken individuals who have come out and said that if you are under the age of 65 and otherwise healthy, there's absolutely no need to get the vaccine. Yeah, I, I don't understand that. Um, I just got my, um, I'm 65 now, so but I, but I, even if I wasn't, I still would have been first in line. I got mine. I'm getting mine Monday. Um, Not mine. Annual immunization <laughs> last week. And and why, why did I want it so badly? Well, of course, I didn't want to go into the hospital or worse, but also, you know, there, there are other things to think about um, <coughs> in which, you know, people just look at the death numbers and First of all, there's still a lot of deaths among young people, but also the injury that that's caused by COVID in so many ways, including long COVID on the cardiopulmonary system and 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 neurologic neurologic illness, where you're in, in long-term psychiatric illness, where you know the CDC's new numbers are 8.8 million Americans with with long COVID. I think the number is. Who's getting that? So, it long COVID can occur after any um, COVID case, even asymptomatic COVID, but it's more far more likely after severe COVID. So, remember the other reason you're getting vaccinated is you don't want to be sick with COVID because that will increase the likelihood you're going to suffer long COVID. And, and that part, and, and there's data to support the impact of long COVID vaccination on long COVID. I think the last numbers is a 30, 40 percent decrease in getting long COVID. That's a big one. And, and, you know, you don't want to be 
a 17 year old applying for colleges with long COVID, right? right? Or you don't want to be a, you know, just graduated from college, thinking about going to graduate school. You don't want to have to deal with long COVID or just getting your first job. You just moved to Boston or Philadelphia or Seattle, wherever young people move to these <laughs> days and have to be burdened with, with long COVID. And, and, and that, that part just gets kind of swept under the rug. And I, and I think that that's very unfair. So I see these new XBB variants circulating. Um, uh, this, this annual immunization is specifically tailored towards it. And so there's every reason uh, to, to get it. What happens after that? I don't know. I mean, will COVID return regularly? I'm not, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on seasonality. Um, I've, we, and that was predicted by Mark Lipsitch at, at Harvard at the beginning of the pandemic based on other upper respiratory coronaviruses. So that may happen. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's even the possibility that this will be the last gasp of COVID. Um, you know, that would be wonderful. But the point is, get your get your immunization. Um, and the other piece to this is if you do get COVID, whether it's breakthrough COVID or whatever, not enough people are going on Paxlovid. I think that's, that's really important. And then Okay, so what happens in the out years? Um, what happens three or four years down the line? I say, look, we've had SARS in 2002. We've had, that's the original one, severe respiratory syndrome, came out of southern China, probably emerged in wet markets very much like COVID did. We had Middle Eastern respiratory syndrome, COVID. You know, I like to say every seven years, we're seeing a major coronavirus event. And so by that reasoning, before 2030, we should expect another one. And so that's why we're now, in addition, making the XB, low-cost XBB booster version, we're trying to see if we can make a universal coronavirus vaccine. So that's going to be important. And then, you know, one of the most commonly asked questions I get is, hey, doc, what the heck is going on? That's the most common question they ask. And so what, what does that mean? So what they mean by that is, okay, so you had, you know, Ebola in 2014, you had Zika in 2016, you had um, now you've got um, there's a dengue COVID outbreak in Jamaica Jamaica and we're going to I have a piece coming out soon about other arboviruses I expect to hit the Gulf yep. Coast so what the heck is going on is I sort of tried to address in my last book it's yeah climate change is a huge driver but I found it's not climate change acting in isolation it's working in concert with um, poverty and urbanization and deforestation so it's all happening at the same time. And so as the viruses are emerging uh, from bats and jumping to humans, either directly or through secondary intermediate animal hosts, people are coming into more and more contact. So this is our new yeah. normal, yeah. I think, our regular pandemics. And again, this comes back to why I really detest these house hearings and trying to tie one hand behind the back of the virologist. This is a, this is a time when we should have an all-out blitz encouraging people to go into virology yeah. and, and head and things off, building virologic, building virologic research capacity because this stuff's coming, right? Yeah. I mean, and and um, that that's the likelihood. So, as part of pandemic preparedness, we need to be training our scientific workforce to to get ready for it. Instead by vilifying and, and creating these arbitrary rules that's going to shut down international research, we're going to be less prepared in a few years than we are even for COVID-19. You see, see how well that went. So 
quite concerned. Well, you stole my next question, um, but you know we've talked a lot about the epidemiologic triad and how environment and climate and 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 populations kind of shape the emergence and spread of infectious diseases. And of course, as someone who's been in tick-borne pathogens um, for for a long time, you know that's always been top of mind for me. Um, oh, by the way, we have a tick-borne disease program. Oh yes, I know. Time. Yeah. Yeah. So. We have relapse and yes. fever. We, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I mean, a lot of it is spent on, you know, we talk about vector-borne illnesses and as, ge- you know, as climate changes or, like you said, poverty, there's more stagnant water for mosquitoes to breed in. There's more um, clear-cutting of forests. So now humans are encroaching on lands that ticks would be inhabiting and you have this geographical spread. And so you're seeing the emergence of diseases in places that maybe more well-off or affluent people wouldn't think about, right? We had some cases of malaria and while malaria has been found in the U S in the past, it's, you know, it's obviously getting more attention. Now we're seeing dengue spread further Northward. I'm going to Uganda in a month and a half. And so I've got loaded up with all my vaccines. Um, but, um, but, you know, you kind of already took my punchline, which is that, you know, the next big public health concern is going to be another emerging pathogen due to a lot of these factors. Um, so, so, and I, and I see the U S where we are, the U S Gulf coast oh, and huge. South you're, and Southern, you're an and Southern Europe is a particular, yeah, particularly vulnerable. I mean, what's amazing, you know, we set up the school of tropical medicine 12 years ago called the national school of tropical medicine. And, and so the other side of what we do other than vaccines is we have, you know, a dozen faculty doing the epidemiology of these emerging infections. What's really interesting is every time they look, they find it. It's just that most of the time, nobody bothers to look. So because it oftentimes involves going into low-income communities, but, you know, there's dengue, there's addition to dengue transmission in Zika and chikungunya. There's um, Chagas disease transmission in in Texas. People don't realize uh, that like Southern Texas is tropical and and those diseases that, I mean, I was in the Amazon rainforest back in 2016 and I was slathering on the 99% deed. I had my yellow fever, my malaria prophylaxis. I was like, I don't need any of this stuff. And, you know, people don't realize that it's, it's actually not that far for those vectors to, to get to the United States, especially as the climate shifts a little bit. Yeah. So I, I'm really worried. So I'm in the, and the big problem is we're not doing amongst the problems. We're, we're not doing the active surveillance for these diseases. We're not going into those communities. And so the diseases are not getting diagnosed. So I, I've been working with Senator Cory Booker, who got interested in this issue, and, um, and he's he's terrific. So um, recently submitted the Stop Neglected Tropical Disease Wonderful. Act, which calls on the agencies to start looking for these diseases. I mean, we found hookworm in Alabama, for instance, with Catherine Coleman Flowers and environmental justice activists. So. Um, Rahelia Mejia and our faculty did that work. So this is um, this is going to be really important, and and it's hard. And it's really interesting after having a lot of success doing advocacy on neglected tropical diseases globally. I thought when we find them here in the U.S., it would really blow the lid off things, and people would get interested. And the opposite has happened. It's nobody wants to talk about it, and and. And, and trying to understand why. I mean, part of it is because it's affecting the poor and people of color disproportionately. That's less interesting for people, tragically. Um, and as Al Gore would always point out, it's those of the same individuals who are more vulnerable to climate change because we're living in climate vulnerable 
uh, areas as, as well. So again, it's that same confluence of forces, poverty, climate change, uh, um, urbanization uh, affecting uh, the Gulf Coast. Diagnostics are a disaster, right? I mean, you have to send it to specialty labs in either our school or the Centers for Disease Control. And most physicians don't want to be bothered, you know, making phone calls to get a diagnostic test. They want, you know, you, you know, when you get your blood work, you get the lab slip from Quest Diagnostics. It's got your blood chemistries, your CBC, your glucose, you know, your creatinine, your, your blood urea nitrogen. There's no Chagas disease or typhus box there. So, and so could, you know, I think with all of the success in home testing for COVID, could we have similar lateral flow assets for all these diseases? Yeah. I think that would help. And of course, the vaccine. So there's a lot of work to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a little bit um, disheartening, a little bit daunting, but also a little bit optimistic because there there is a lot of work to be done. And, and we're hoping that, you know, people will, will get, you know, enthused and involved. Um and, and I think, um, you know, you touched on several things already, um, you know, the surveillance program, getting out and, and addressing these multifactorial contributors of infectious disease and emerging infectious disease. Um, but you also describe, and I know, you know, I, I know we just have a couple, a couple more questions, but you, you described a framework for how scientists and clinicians and, and advocacy, advocacy um, arms of, of agencies as well as regulatory agencies could work together to improve um, literacy, science literacy, but also health outcomes. That's and that. you, you so, exp- also, the, also the, so also the social. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Because, because, you know, um, I lump those into I've scientists. Worked, I've, I've worked mostly in academic health centers and which I like to call the worst, like what Churchill said about democracies, the worst form of governance you could possibly imagine, except for all the others. And 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 one of the problems with academic health, amongst the problems, is they tend to be very siloed from the rest of the university. In some cases, they're in different cities or different parts of yeah. the city, but they're a very different culture. They operate in a very different culture. So we don't have easy mechanisms for us, I mean, I have to seek out political scientists to help me write this book, but we don't have easy mechanisms for the biomedical scientists to talk to the economists, to talk to the urban city planners, the 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 climate change experts, the, the earth scientists. And we have to figure out ways to make that. We're so incentivized to write and speak for each other and so siloed. I think, you know, we really need these kind of I don't know what you call them. Pan, you know, Oxford has now created these pandemic. Yeah, like a like an incubator, an incubator for something like this. Yeah, we, we need we need that to foster more interdisciplinary dialogue and encourage. Andrew, yeah. do we not say this? Oh my god, we gosh. say this all the time. Andrew, we literally, we, we, we <laughs> like last week. We literally were saying this with alongside um, some some clinicians, a pulmonologist, allergist, a, a mm-hmm. couple of psychiatrists. It was like we've. We've got to do this. To, we've got to do this together, and um, and, and, encur- and encourage us to speak out and to communicate. Yeah, right. I mean, I think too often, you know, we, you know, the message that we get um, at universities or academic health centers is, you know, hey, you're an academic, you're free to speak out and whatever you want. Dot dot yeah. dot. But don't screw this up and don't get the institution in trouble. Right. So. Yeah. That's sort of the sort of Damocles over your yeah. head. And so the institutions have a different agenda. They, they don't care as much about 
your social justice issue or fighting anti-science. They want to protect the reputation of the institution, which generally means keeping the institution out of the newspaper headlines at all costs and and to do the exact opposite of what, what we're trying to do today. And so how we change the culture of universities to encourage scientists to speak or provide that communication training um, in our graduate schools, in our postdoctoral schools. I mean, I, I mean, I had to learn it by trial Same. and error. <laughs> more, 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 more error than trial in my case. And, and, but there's ways to do yeah. this. And, but, but there's no incentive to do right. it. I mean, I get, I get evaluated as a professor like everybody else. I don't see patients anymore. So what do they ask me about? They ask me about my papers and preferably in high, what they call high impact journals and, and grants, right? They don't, there's not even a place on my annual evaluation form for the books. Mm-hmm. Right. The, the opinion pieces, right. Or, or certainly not the cable news right. channel hits or, or, and certainly nothing on social, nothing, nothing on social media. So how do we change that culture to get, people to recognize that this kind of activity that we're doing right now is important and and is critical for the future of science. It's, so there's it's it's a culture change that's going to take time. That's so interesting. Andrew, you know, anytime we get asked to speak or be a part of any event, it's okay, send us a list of your publications. And to your point, I'm thinking publications for the past three years, we've been living and breathing <laughs> science communication, you know, via social media channels, and there's absolutely no value placed on that, it seems. So we are in total, total agreement. Um, I still kind of feel like I'm in a fever dream right now that this is even happening. And the second <laughs> we exit this, I'm just going to go freak out and like stick my face in a, in, <laughs> in a bowl of ice. Do you have any sort of last words, anything else you want to share with folks who are listening? Dr. Hotez, any, any final thoughts? Well, I think, you know, we're, the, the book is a pretty dark book, unfortunately. And I, you know, and I try, and then, and most of my books, I tried to end on some level <laughs> optimistic note. This one I, yes. was tough. I, I, right? I agree. I, mean, I left, I finished it, it and I was like, yeah, my existential dread is validated. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. And 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 the problem is, you know, in the past there was always this sort of self-correction or autocorrection mechanism, right? Parents would see a measles epidemic in the community or a whooping cough epidemic, and they say, "Oh my God, you know, let's get all the kids vaccinated." There'd be sort of this community approach to redoubling on vaccination now with 200,000 Americans dying. Um, instead, we're getting a whitewash and a deliberate attempt to reinvent history. And and even, you know, in a lot of the mainstream press communications I'm having now, they want to point fingers that we screwed up because we didn't communicate science well. And, and sure, we, we didn't always. And, but, but, it's a tone deaf to the fact that there is this active aggression politically motivated to weaponize science communication. And that's, that's the biggest, that's the reason I wrote the book is to basically lay, spell it out that so people really understand what's, um, what's happening, but I don't see any sense of urgency right now in, in it. Um, you know, the, the UN agencies are not, really working to fix this the, the the white house is not necessarily seeing this as a as a top priority or if they are it's all behind the scenes and so i i do worry about further erosion in in um in science and and further attacks on scientists going up to the 2024 election and 
And then we'll see what happens after that. And and I also worry about the globalization of this. You're starting to see the same garbage now in Canada with the health freedom convoys. You're seeing it in in Central Europe, um, in in Germany, in Austria, where far right groups are latching onto this. And we're seeing it in low and middle income countries, although it's not as well documented as it needs to be. The same kind of U.S. style anti-vaccine rhetoric around malaria vaccine uptake, or um, so. Um, and I worry we'll lose two, two decades of progress with through the Gavi Alliance and, and, and vaccinating the world's children. So, so it's going to be a wild ride for a while. So the other, that's a long way of saying keep doing that was, what you're doing. That was doing. very uplifting. Thank you. What you're doing, you. what, what, what you're, what you're doing is more important than ever and, uh, and, and needs, needs to get the recognition it deserves. So I really thank oh you. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you. We feel... <laughs> Exactly the same about all the work you're doing, particularly with, I was talking to my partner and he was like, wait, it's called the neglected and And I was like, yeah, they're neglected because they're, you know, developing nations and rich people don't care about them as much. So like, you know, he's like, oh, I didn't, you know, but you know, you don't, you don't think about, you know, a lot of people don't, it's not, you know, an immediate thought, like he knows the diseases are out there, but in the context of how they're viewed, even by scientists, they're viewed as neglected. Um, and so- you know, that that's always had a close place in my heart. I I've been always always been fascinated by rare parasitic infections ever since I was a child. But um any any anything else, Jess, any uplifting words of wisdom? No, I mean go by the book. Um yes. oh, <laughs> oh, yes. yeah. where where can our listeners buy or pick up a copy of The Deadly Rise of Anti Science, a scientist's warning? Well, it's it's. I don't think you're going to see it in airport bookstores, probably, <laughs> but but you can get it on Amazon and the usual uh, usual suspects. And, awesome. and uh, um, but you know, it, it it was it's very meaningful for me to be able to to spell it out like that, um, even though it was it's scary. And and of course, this will set off. A, I'm a, I'm already seeing the. I was going to say you're so, you know, you're in for a whirlwind. So mm-hmm. they're they're already pulling out you know you know i I get in the past you get anti-vaxxers who shove cell phone cameras in your face and say provocative things to you in the hope that you respond and say something provocative and they put it up on youtube so i already see all those being recircled Mm. recycled again from years ago and 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 we'll see what's going to happen with uh, our elected Mm -hmm. officials on the far right i think Well, we stand with you. We'll continue to support you. Uh, We're in your corner and just, you really are a personal hero of ours. This is a dream come true. Thank you so much for everything you've done for the world. (laughs) It's amazing. Let's let's stay in touch. We'll see, you know, it's going to be an interesting fall. And as I say, as we head to the election, um, I don't see this, you know, eventually the world will get better, but it may get worse before yeah. it gets better. So let's keep in touch and always happy. To- um, thank you so much, Dr. Hotez, for joining us. It truly was an honor of our lifetime. Um, we so admire all the work you've done, the work you're doing, the work you continue to do. Um, everyone, please pick up a copy of his book. It's very insightful, a little bit um, disheartening, but but very, very much an excellent read. Um, so thank you to all of our listeners. We hope you learned a thing or two. Um, if you want to support our efforts and help us grow the impact and reach of unbiased science, we always welcome your contributions. We have donation pages on our website, um, as well as a coffee page. 
Um, every dollar helps us continue our science communication efforts. We also are launching our new line of merch for season four. Um, and we have a newsletter subscription through Substack. Uh, you can find everything at our website at www.unbiasedipod.com. Please also make sure to subscribe to YouTube if you want to see our videos. Our handle is at UnbiasedSciPod. And all of our social channels, same handle, at UnbiasedSciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah, oh, I am.